Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and today we have the honor of speaking with Ignat Solzhenitsyn, son of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an incredibly important author and voice of the 20th century. He wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which Time Magazine named as the best nonfiction book of the 20th century. He was a Russian dissident. He exposed a lot of the horrors that were happening in the Soviet Union, horrors that were being denied, not just there, but around the world. He spoke for virtue and morality and the importance of both in public life. Ignat Solzhenitsyn himself is a very accomplished individual. We're very fortunate to be able to hear from him. He is a world-class musician, a composer, a conductor, he has led symphonies around the world, including the Moscow Symphony, and he is just a thoughtful voice in these days as well. As we explore this aspect of uh, the human condition, but also of our history, and unfortunately it's history that's often glossed over or ignored, so we're very grateful to have Ignat join us to do just that. Ignat, welcome to the show. Very glad to be with you. Well, I introduced you to a certain extent, but is there any chance you could expand upon that a little bit more for our audience? Well, I think you did a great job. In addition to my uh, professional hat as uh, a conductor and pianist, I also wear uh, uh, occasionally this other hat as uh, as my father's son, and and um, maybe more importantly, as a uh, as someone who tries to. Uh, keep uh, his word in the uh, flourishing, so to speak, in the English-speaking world and to make sure that uh, translations of his works, some of which still have not been translated into English, continue apace and that uh, people have a chance to re-engage oftentimes in a new way for a new time with so much of that timeless wisdom that he offers. Yeah, I think that's a good description of what your father offered was timeless wisdom, Uh, just very important topics for us. And in the 1970s, he may have been a household name um, in many parts of the world, but that has really atrophied in the decades since. And particularly, I'm thinking about our younger audience, our younger listeners, who maybe they're just hearing about Alexander Solzhenitsyn for the first time. I introduced him briefly as well, but could you tell us a bit more about your dad his experience, and why what he shared was so important. My father was born in 1918, a, a twin of the revolution, so to speak, uh, just a few months after it happened. And he was born into an Orthodox family, Orth- Russian Orthodox Christian family, but um, was soon uh, brainwashed enough by the militant atheistic propaganda uh, in his school and all around him that he became a conventional Marxist student, believing what everybody else believed, and ready to march forward with this glorious new path that uh, 
the Soviet Union was forging for, for itself and for its citizens, supposedly. And uh, little by little, those scales fell off his eyes. First of all, through war, when he saw much of what was terrible in human nature in, in, during war. And then in the camps, uh, after he was arrested, which was at the end of the war, he was arrested for correspondence with a university friend, where they began to criticize Stalin, thinking that Lenin was okay, the system was okay, but Stalin wasn't doing it right. And uh, that was a kind of a first step on the way to seeing things clearly. Uh, it wasn't much, but it was enough to land him in labor camps for eight years. And after that, perpetual exile, which means he was supposed to go to the edge of the desert in Kazakhstan, which of course then was part of the USSR, and live there forever until he dies. And that very likely would have happened, except that Stalin died. And when Stalin died, uh, the new leadership began to reevaluate some of these, what came to be known as the excesses of the cult of personality. And they did, as opposed to their credit, bring back uh, millions of people, those who were still alive from those camps, uh, or in my father's case, from uh, exile. This is, again, internal exile in the Soviet Union. They brought them back to allow them to, to kind of resume theoretically a normal life in uh, Soviet society. By then, having, having lived through the camps, having seen uh, the degradation of spirit that occurs there, not to mention the body, uh, Solzhenitsyn was able to uh, really see, I think, see life for what it was and for what it is. And also he had a near-death experience with cancer, which was late to be diagnosed and mistreated at first, and eventually uh, a kind of almost miraculous recovery that is detailed in his great novel, Cancer Ward. And so from that time onwards, which is approximately uh, from the mid-50s, so uh, from his late 30s, age uh, of, of, of late 30s, uh, he had his clear convictions, as a, of course, as an anti-communist, as a champion of human dignity, uh, as a champion of human freedom. Uh, and uh, he had returned to his faith of his youth and of, of his parents. And then it's a faith that he kept, to which he kept steadfast for, for the remainder of his life. Well, and then, then comes a period of uh, secret writing. Uh, and then comes a, comes a period of open uh, fame and, and, and uh, even celebrity in the Soviet Union because Khrushchev had mistakenly decided that it would be a good idea to publish one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, which is that extraordinary uh, short story telling the day of an ordinary, one day in the sentence of an ordinary camp inmate, Ivan Denisovich, a kind of everyman. This prisoner is not special for any reason. Uh, he's just a regular prisoner, and that's what really brings home how inhuman and monstrous this system is. Khrushchev thought it would be a good idea to contrast this tale of the past, the recent past, under Stalin with this new, uh, more humane uh, regime that he was supposedly heading. But of course, it backfired because the result of the publication of Ivan Denisovich in Russia, in Soviet Union, was 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 uh, the effect, as was described, of a psychological bomb. And society could never go back to either not knowing or pretending not, not to know 
what was happening inside the country. And so Solzhenitsyn increasingly quickly fell out of favor, literally, literally in, in, in the space of several weeks um, after the authorities realized how they had miscalculated. And there was a long period of, of uh, increasing uh, conflict between Solzhenitsyn and this all-powerful, all all-knowing, it seemed, uh, omniscient totalitarian state. This, of course, is described very memorably in, his, in the first volume of his memoirs called The Oak and the Calf, which harkens to a Russian proverb. The calf is a, is a helpless little creature, of course, uh, uh, in this case, Solzhenitsyn himself. And then the oak is the mighty, the mighty system. And yet, and yet the calf is able to stand its ground and even, even win. Uh, so uh, that resulted eventually in the Gulag Archipelago you mentioned, his great chronicle epic of the Soviet camp system was discovered by the authorities. Uh, he was arrested again, charged with treason, expelled to the West. And then he spent next 20 years in the West, in Switzerland and in the USA, uh, against his will, because he would have preferred to be home with his people in his country, but of course also grateful for the uh, opportunity to write freely uh, and to raise his family uh, freely uh, in a way that uh, would have been impossible at home. And when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 and, and communism fell in the Soviet Union, came to be no more than after that, Solzhenitsyn went back home, as he always wished uh, to be, again, to be at home and to be amongst his, his people and his language. And he spent another 14 years of a fruitful old age uh, in uh, back home in Russia, and he died in 2008 at age 89. So that's the, the Cliff's Notes version. We will return to the podcast momentarily. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at ChristianEmergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.ChristianEmergency.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, he certainly lived a powerful life, a life well lived despite the the grim prospects early on in his life of just how short and, and cruel that could be, but uh, very important for a variety of reasons. He really pulled back the curtain on the horrors of the camps, things that were really just the, the construct of rumors and suggestions by some, but he really detailed it, and he, he wrote about it, like you said, in the Gulag Archipelago. He documented the accounts of others in prison. 
he put this all together, which was really an incredible feat. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because here's one of the reasons I think this is so important is in this day and age, strange things are afoot. We're talking to Christians around the world who don't really know what way is up, what is down, what to trust, what's false. They're being given a lot of messaging, official messaging. I hate to say it, but there's even camps cropping up around the world. There's camps all over China. There were camps over the last two years showing up in Australia. All of that makes me nervous. All of it makes me think of uh, what your dad wrote about. And yet your dad did all this and, and, like I said, pulled that curtain back when it was almost impossible to write. And it is a huge volume. The Gulag Archipelago is a serious undertaking for anybody that can commit the time to digest it, but it's an important read, and I would encourage our listeners to do so. But how did your dad go about writing this massive tome? It would have been completely unimaginable to just take up such a task, even for a writer of my father's genius, a discipline, commitment, focus. One wouldn't have known where to start. That's why he originally had written One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, precisely because one couldn't even think about describing all of it. He thought, why don't I describe just some of it? In fact, very, very little of it. Again, just one day in the life of one ordinary prisoner. And the day itself is ordinary. It's not an extraordinary day. It's a typical day. And by doing that in, in, in one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, he was able to sort of project uh, what that life was like uh, for the reader to imagine. But as a result of the publication of Ivan Denisovich, to which I referred a few minutes ago, official sanctioned publication in the most prestigious journal in uh, the Soviet Union, Novi Mir, uh, which continues today. Uh, Novi Mir is, is more or less the New Yorker uh, of Russia, except with a much, much, much higher readership. So, so uh, when uh, Ivan Denisovich was published, hundreds of former prisoners wrote letters to Solzhenitsyn. Well, hundreds and I guess thousands of people wrote letters, but specifically former prisoners wrote letters saying some combination of, of really two things. One, thank you for telling the truth about us, about what happened, because nobody had done it. And two, here's what happened to me, over and above what you've told in Ivan Denisovich. Here was my experience. In a very few cases, it, was, it wasn't as bad as you describe, but in the majority of cases, it was, it, was, it was far worse than you describe. You must have been in a very easy camp to have seen that, but look at what happened to my campmates and myself. And there were so many, as I say, hundreds of letters, 227, uh, and then eventually expanded to 240, I think is the final tally, of witnesses whose testimony he used with permission and in some cases withholding their name while it was not yet safe, whose testimony he used to, to fashion this incredible indictment, not just against the Soviet regime, not just against this atheistic anti-human regime that glorified and practiced uh, slavery of the most abject kind, uh, but an indictment against what humanity, and that means each one of us, that means you and I, are capable of. First and foremost, on the side of evil, first and foremost on the side of executioners, on the side of torturers, but also, crucially, on the side of the angels, because he saw acts of heroism, usually very sm small acts of heroism in that 
they were never destined to be, except through him, glorified in a book or, 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 or have tales told of them. But just people refusing to behave like scoundrels, even though their life depended upon their not doing so. People refusing to betray a, a fellow person, even though that would have meant an extra ration and the difference between surviving and perishing. And so the Gulag Archipelago, this great book, this great epic of uh, the Soviet camps and of the Soviet system in general, is not to be misunderstood as either a narrow political attack. Well, if you want to read anti-communist literature, it's a great place to start. Well, it is a great place to start, but it's so much more than an attack on that vile system. It's really uh, a book that goes to the heart of what it is to be human. And the second point that goes with that is sometimes people begin the book and don't finish it because they, as you say, they, 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 they don't make the time or they don't have the time, but more often because they get dispirited by some of the awful things that one encounters very early on in the first four or five chapters. Say, oh, no, I can't read this. Uh, it's too, you know, it's too depressing. Uh, well, apart from the, the morally dubious character of that approach, uh, a kind of uh, hiding in the sand like an ostrich, uh, you know, we need to, it seems to me, we need to face the world as it is, not as we would wish it to be. But apart from all that, uh, this book is a great testament to the human spirit, is a great testament to the power of persistence and the power of truth over lies. And uh, this other Russian proverb that Solzhenitsyn quotes, of course, in, in his Nobel lecture, that one word of truth will outweigh the whole world. And of course, that book, which is much more than one word, but it is, uh, if you will, poetically speaking, one word of one man, uh, was enough to spell, ultimately to spell the doom of the Soviet system. It just provides so much context and perspective for, for people today that I, I think it is important for people to read and understand for themselves. Like I said, I would highly encourage those that uh, have the time and capacity to do so, to just get a copy, curl up uh, for several nights and enjoy it, uh, digest it, um, learn from it. But I'm also very excited that um, you and others took it upon yourselves to help create a, an abridged version and I believe you even narrated this abridged version on Audible. So it's it's shorter, it's more compact. And for our, those in our audience who prefer to listen while they're driving or commuting, this would be a resource that you could use. Um, but that, that way it'd be a lot more compact, but you could still get a lot of the meat from the contents. But it, provided you agree, and it sounds like you do, why is it important for Christians today and people generally but to be able to get their hands on this type of a resource and learn from it. Well, just to just to uh, expand on your first point for a moment, uh, I, I did not have any hand in the abridgment, which was done when I was uh, just a kid, uh, maybe 10 years old. Uh, but it was done by a distinguished uh, professor of uh, medieval literature, English literature, uh, but also a great scholar of social needs and called, called Edward Erickson. And, and Ed Erickson uh, had written my father saying, I know it's a long shot, but I wonder if you would consider 
creating or uh, an abridged version because uh, again it's a big book three volumes and not everybody has time and so forth and yet the message is so crucial and my father had been uh, i think thinking the same thing for an american audience especially but just western english-speaking audiences in general that readership is maybe a better word and so in short he he enthusiastically agreed to erickson's proposal said let's try it let's see what you come up with and so Erickson, with my father's approval, uh, created this abridged version, which has been almost never out of print since it was first published in 1985. And then as you referred to, I was asked to narrate, uh, to read it for Audible, and it's available on all those platforms. And so that's uh, my reading of this of this abridged version. Having said that, I, I would still strongly recommend the unabridged full version because that's the original and that's ultimately the far deeper and, and more rewarding experience. But uh, certainly the abridged version is uh, an honorable, uh, you know, second place. Mm. And with respect to, I think your question was, what does the book, what can it mean for Christians today? First of all, what I already said, uh, we need to deal with our great human capacity for, uh, for good and for evil. And uh, that message is, not to be distorted, is not to be uh, dismissed as something that happens to somebody else, either because one happens to be, live in a, in a happy and, and uh, kind of a carefree society, relatively speaking, uh, or because one thinks, well, I would never do such a thing. Again, that doesn't seem like it's relevant if we live in an easy society, but the fact is that it is relevant to our moral well-being and to understand the depths we're capable of. Let me read a short passage, if I may, Andy, that is one of the crucial passages in the Gulag Archipelago, but it's about this very point. It was granted me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this ex essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. Since then, I have come to understand the truth of all the religions of the world. They struggle with the evil inside a human being and inside every human being. It is impossible to expel evil from the world in its entirety, but it is possible to constrict it within each person. So yeah. that's from the, from, from the Gulag Archipelago, food for thought for all of us, I think. Yeah, when you read uh, the Gulag Archipelago, it, it is challenging at times, but 
like the passage you just read, it can be very humbling. You'll find yourself introspective and reflecting on the human condition and also our spiritual condition. And as Christians, we we look to Christ and his righteousness and not our own um, in that capacity, because we do understand that even our good works can uh, prove bad and be badly motivated. Um, I also found it from my own reading of it that it provided many, many very good uh, challenging, but at times encouraging examples of Christians in prison and sometimes how they ended up in prison, the things that happened to them, how they reacted, uh, how they endeavored to care for one another, how they struggled. But all of that is part of church history. All of that is part of Christian history uh, in addition to the history of the world. But unfortunately, it's it's poorly known. It's not well cataloged. It's not emphasized in a, in a lot of schools. A very important work. It'll help put in some important context and coloring as you look out into the world as Christians and uh, make sense of it. And and as a realist, as Ignat mentioned, uh, we want to take the world as it is, not as we wish it were, and engage thoughtfully, prayerfully, and graciously as we go forward. Ignat, are there any final thoughts that you would share with our audience today on any of this? Well, those are beautiful words, Andy, and and so well said. Uh, well, I don't know about final thoughts, but I would just say that um, hope is something that that if uh, Solzhenitsyn and others like him, and certainly Christians in the camps, did not lose hope then, then certainly uh, the rest of us should not lose hope now. Amen. There's always hope before us, and we can uh, take confidence in that and joy in this life that we've been given. Well, Ignat, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, but thank you for sparing some moments with us to share these insights. I hope our audience will go and either listen to or better yet, get the full version and read it for themselves and be blessed by it. Thank you so much, Andy. God bless you and everyone. God bless you too. Thank you, sir, and have a great day. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.